Today on Ag News Daily. What we call light treatments that improve how plants grow, yield quality and plant health. And we do that over a range of crops, uh, in particular corn and soybean on the seed side. Listeners, this episode is brought to you by Vestron, your game changer and revolutionary insecticide. Visit V-E-S-T-A-R-O-N.com today. June 6th, 2023, Tech Tuesday, here to hang out, Tanner and Delaney, bringing us some headlines before we get into a great interview today. Ready, Delaney? I am ready, Tanner. Where should we start? Maybe with the crop progress report. Yeah, let's uh, dive into that because it looks like the weather is going to be more of the same from yesterday. I'll recap that after you start in the crop progress report. Well, yesterday we saw that things are pretty well planted across the Corn Belt, Tanner, and corn and soybean planting and development continued ahead of the average pace last week. But conditions for both crops are some of the lowest that we've seen for this time of year in the last decade. This is according to the latest Cropper Progress report released yesterday. For corn planting progress, we moved ahead four percentage points, now 96% complete as of Sunday, June 4th. As far as the progress of that crop emergence goes, 85% of the corn crop has emerged as of Sunday. And nationally, corn was rated 64% good to excellent. That's down five percentage points from the year prior below last year's rating at this time, which was at 73% and is currently rated the lowest for this time of year since 2013, Tanner. Now on the soybean side of things, we moved ahead eight percentage points to be 91% completed as of Sunday and crop progress 74% of soybeans were emerged as of Sunday, May or June 20th, June 4th, 20 percentage points ahead of last year. In the crop conditions, the first ever for soybeans here for the season, NAS pegged the conditions of the crop 62% good to excellent nationwide, which is the slowest or lowest start for soybeans this time of year since 2014. And lastly, in winter wheat country, 82% of the winter wheat has headed as of Sunday. And we're starting to see a little bit of harvest progress, 4% harvested as of Sunday. So we're going to start to see more numbers come out of the fields as we get into wheat harvest season, Tanner. But all in all, things are not looking up and up for corn and soybean country as of right now. Yeah, it's interesting as you continue to hear reports of pockets of drought, especially up here in the I-States. saw a couple of interesting demonstrations from the smoke pushing down from Canada causing jet stream altering paths as far as the way things are going. Spring wheat also uh, looks to be almost all planted and 76% of that has been emerged as of June 4th. Eastern Minnesota and Ohio and Michigan are still under air quality alerts this morning from smoke from Canada continues to pop down. Thunderstorms are possible in Wisconsin, although it appears severe weather isn't forecasted for that region. Chances of storms will persist through the week. And at the end of the weekend, we go further south into the southern plains. We've got more rain on the way Oklahoma and Texas panhandles areas that are already experiencing some heavy rainfall are now have some more thunderstorms on their way strong to severe to severe thunderstorms 
Tuesday into Wednesday with wind and hail being the major threat. But we also know that that could look at increasing flood zones that are already experiencing more water than they've seen in the last three years, Delaney. Yeah, we're going to be chatting with a farmer about some of that recent rainfall that they've been experiencing there down in the panhandle and Hopefully those folks are in our thoughts and prayers. But Tanner, speaking of a lot of water, got a few water headlines for our listeners. Late last week, we saw a 10-year court case finally settled as a WOTUS issue between the state of Idaho and the Sackett family was settled. This lawsuit, Tanner, has been ongoing for the last two decades between the Idaho farm and the EPA. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled on the issue, which, if you'll think back here, the issue was that Sackett County, or excuse me, Sackett family bought the right to purchase some land that they wanted to develop. And this happened back in 2004, way before we saw the Clean Water Act and current waters of the U.S. It's about 300 feet away from Priest Lake. And the EPA tried to rule that they were going to have a direct impact on a water of the U.S., and tied this thing up for, as we know now, about two decades. But in a unanimous ruling last week, the court said at the Supreme Court level that the land that the Sackett family owned was not subject to the Clean Water Act, and the family did, in fact, have the right to develop that land as they saw fit. So this is a landmark case, Tanner, and the Supreme Court's decision sends the EPA's latest WOTUS rule back to the drawing board. Yeah, that's uh, interesting as far as that goes. Landmark is probably the right description. Staying on the water category, both Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other for a dam breach in the Russian-occupied region of Ukraine. Ukraine military intelligence claimed that Russian forces destroyed the Novakovka Dam in panic, the Kremlin denied involvement and accused Ukraine of deliberate sabotage of the dam. So far, Ukraine's prime minister is saying there are no civilian casualties as a result of the flooding after the dam deconstruction. The dam is a critical piece of infrastructure, supplies water for much of southeastern Ukraine, including the Zaporizhia. I know I struggle saying that every time, Delaney, nuclear plant that has been popular in discussions of headlines, and that plant is located on the Crimean Peninsula. The destruction of the major critical dam on uh, the rivers prompted evacuations of the southern region. Over 80 settlements have been ordered to evacuate. Right now, nearly 1,000 people have been displaced from their town. The interesting part of this is the first city to flood outside of the dam is a Russian-occupied city. Obviously, it's in the Ukrainian territory, but we will continue to watch. Ukraine is now calling the UN Security Council meeting for an impromptu meeting to put new sanctions on Russia after the dam disaster. It's always interesting to watch headlines to see where things are coming from as far as campaigns for attacks. The Russian attack on the infrastructure is causing an ecological damage rather than typical wartime law permits. This could be labeled a terrorist attack if Russia is proven guilty. The hydroelectric power plant is 
essential, the Ukraine ministry is saying, and ask their foreign partners to put together an emergency session and meeting to discuss what solutions will be in place for those that now will be without power, without clean water. And of course, the water is necessary for cooling down the nuclear power plant that is there as well. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that one. But that's the latest from Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, my Ukrainian farmer friend Case Housinga sent me the video tanner of the dam being blown up. And it's pretty scary. But uh, the amount of water that is potentially going to flood downstream effects is going to be massive. And not only does this water stream supply some of Ukraine, but it also supplies some of Europe as well. So it could lead to some potential water issues for those surrounding nations here moving forward. Tanner, we got word that the Sov Econ, which is kind of Russia's version of USDA, raised their 23-24 wheat export forecast by 2.7 million metric tons, now to a record 45.7 million metric tons, citing an increased production outlook, as that came from Russia's ag minister. They also said they plan no difference in purchases for intervention stockpiles, and they've had a very active start to the new crop shipping season. It does make you wonder, Tanner, if uh, they're pulling at some different strings here. As we know, they've been really trying to delay shipments coming out of the Black Sea region. Is it perhaps because they want to get their product out on the world market? I'm just reading between the lines. I really have no clear indication that that is the case, but just something to keep an eye on. Yeah, you seem to do a good job of keeping our finger and eye on things. Just want to remind our listeners for a strong defense against LEPs, you need a game changer. Spear RC is Vestron's revolutionary insecticide for high value crops. Visit V-E-S-T-A-R-O-N.com today. Sticking on the water theme, found another headline here. Scientists have released their 2023 forecast for the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, using air quotes as I said that predicting it will be around 4,100 square miles this summer. That is more than 20% larger than last year, but is still smaller than average. The dead zone is a hypoxic area where low oxygen could possibly kill fish and other marine life. It's caused due to the excessive nutrient runoff, largely from fertilizers used on farm fields and cities for lawns in the Midwest. Obviously, this gets to the Gulf and ends up coming into the Gulf through the Mississippi River as it flows south. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uses models to put their data from geological surveys to forecast the size of the dead zone each year. The data then in from river gauges is accumulated and spits off the ultimate size in which this dead zone has been put together. The five-year average has been 4,280 square miles, more than double the target from the United States. But as stated this year, the 4,100 square miles is a win for farmers. As far as political discussions go, this demonstrates how farmers are working to protect the environment. And even though it may not be all their fault, are going to continue to look for bipartisan infrastructure laws that help advance the goals of all parties. So good news there, Delaney, as that spot appears to be shrinking. Well, Tanner, one thing that does not appear to be shrinking is the demand for boxed beef. 
Darren Newsom shared this on his Twitter account and tagged Ag News Daily, but U.S. boxed beef markets have hit a 22-month high Monday afternoon with choice reported at $314 per 100 pounds and select at $296. That is definitely showing, Tanner, that the American consumer is here for the beef. But uh, one final piece of news I have here, because June is, of course, dairy month here in the U.S., and it turns out that cows, dairy cows have personalities that are reflective of their ability or willingness to deal with automated milk systems. This is an interesting study put together by a Canadian university where researchers studied 60 dairy cows to map various personality traits and how those traits affect their milk yield when connected to an automated milking system. Cows were scored either high or low on being active, bold, or an explorer. And their scores on each of those characteristics impacted how the cow uh, was able to be milked and enjoyed or their willingness to be milked. But interesting little side note story there for our listeners. I've just got two quick beef headlines to wrap up my news. Quarterly report from Rabobank shows an increased beef production in Brazil and Australia that will likely offset the production declines that we've been talking about here in the U.S. as those countries bump up their production. It will be looking to make export markets for their regions a little bit larger. Their domestic consumption is static, so the extra beef will more than likely over the next 12 months be put into the global market. Tyson Foods announced that they are cutting 262 employees that are currently in South Dakota who have opted not to transfer to Arkansas showing widespread resistance to the move of the company's headquarters. The company confirmed on Friday the layoffs removed some key executives at this time for the U.S. meatpacker. They will be seeking to cut costs and easing uh, in the face of easing demand from cash-strapped consumers, like you talked about, that are looking at high boxed beef prices. Tyson said in October it would relocate all of its corporate employees from the offices in the Dakota Dunes in South Dakota, along with Chicago and Downers Grove, Illinois, to Springdale, Arkansas. But it looks like out of the 500 employees total, half have said they're not moving, Delaney. But that's what I've got for headlines today. Well, Tanner, I think I am all out of news for today as well. So before we jump into looking at the markets here at the opening, a quick reminder to our listeners that for a strong defense against LEPs, you need a game changer. Spear RC is Vesteron's revolutionary insecticide for high-value row crops. Visit Vesteron, V-E-S-T-A-R-O-N.com today. Tanner, as we look at the opening markets here this morning, they seem to certainly be trading some lower crop conditions numbers. As here at the open, July corn is up about nine cents at 606 and three quarters. New crop corn up two and three quarters cents at 539 and three quarters. In the soybean pits today, they're slightly trading to the downside as the July contract is down about two cents here at the open at 1347. New crop beans down just about a penny at 1178. Hard red winter wheat is also pushing higher today at seven and three quarters cents higher at 829 and three quarters. And as we take a look at the livestock markets here at the open, as a reminder, seeing some additional strength as box beef cutout prices have been pushing to new highs. The cattle complex has been following suit. August live cattle up 27 and a half cents today at a buck 
August feeders up 10 cents at the open at 242.70, and August lean hogs up $1.67.5 at 8330. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick things over to today's Tech Tuesday conversation. Well, folks, for today's hashtag Tech Tuesday interview, we're chatting today with Steve Sabolkin, the CEO of BioLumic, which had an exciting announcement released today, and we'll get to that more here in just a moment. But Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Steve, I'm really excited to learn more about BioLumic, and I'm sure our listeners are too. I was surprised to learn that this was a New Zealand-based company, and you guys have been in the industry for quite some time, but listeners may not be as familiar with the company. So give us the high-level overview of what BioLumic does. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Well, BioLumic is an agricultural biotech company, and we uh, focus on unlocking the natural genetic expression of plants. Uh, we do so through our light signal platform that allows us to program uh, plants with light. And effectively, what that means is we are able to identify and develop what we call light treatments that improve how plants grow, yield quality, and plant health. And we do that over a range of crops, uh, in particular corn and soybean on the seed side. That was going to be my curious question is how many different crops can this technology apply to? Yeah, so uh, great question. The company has worked with 12 crops uh, with the same underlying science. We're focused on something called photomorphogenesis, which is essentially we're mediating and regulating the the genetic expression of plants with light. Uh, We've deployed that on 12 crops. Some of them are young plants. uh, So uh, tomatoes and lettuce and so forth. And some of them are seed, of course, where we do our work with corn and soybeans, but the same underlying technology is deployed uh, with very different treatment systems, of course, across the range of those uh, crops. Steve, there were a lot of technical terms in there that I want to break down for our listeners a little bit more because you mentioned genetic expression. That's one term I had a question about, but also ultraviolet light seed treatment. What is that? Right. So we focus on a very specific part of the light spectrum. And what we're doing here is not actually photosynthesis where, you know, all of us grew up learning about the effect of photosynthesis on plants and the importance of it. We're doing something that is slightly different than that. We're regulating how a plant uh, grows without changing the underlying genetics. And, you know, essentially we are creating a Uh, communication to a plant, uh, a signal to the plant that gives it a stress event or sets off a pathway that helps it to identify the direction of its growth. Um, We're doing that with UV light treatments. They're all short duration. So in seed, it's just treated uh, in seconds or minutes uh, at that stage. In young plants, it might occur over a few days. So when we look at the importance of this, is it focused on helping farmers reduce? Is it insecticides? Is it fertilizer? What what benefits are they getting? Yeah, it's really all of those things. So Biolimic is focused on uh, helping farmers to grow more with less. And in our case, what that means is uh, we are uh, trying to help farmers to uh, improve their yield and their quality and their plant health, all of which we've been able to, to do. And we think of our technology as a in-seed treatment. And so it's 
in that way, it's complementary to the things that they are already deploying in the field. So in some cases, they may be able to reduce uh, the amount of chemicals that are applied to get the same plant health benefit. In other cases, they're simply getting more uh, yield for the same amount of inputs that they're deploying in the field. So it ends up being more profitable and more sustainable as a way to grow the crop. So Steve, the big announcement today is Biolumic's partnership announcement here with Grow Alliance LLC. Tell us a little bit more about that partnership and how it's going to allow you to better be able to serve growers. Yes, we are so excited at Biolumic uh, to be partnering with Grow Alliance. And just for background, Grow Alliance is North America's largest independently owned contract seed corn and seed uh, soybean seed production company. Uh, we've had a relationship with them for a few years. And when we started seeing the corn and soybean results that we've been seeing in the field over the past few years um, achieve the milestones that we'd, we'd set out, you know, the conversations with Grow Alliance and Biolumic intensified. Um, effectively, what we are doing together was we're bringing the first commercial uh, light signal treatments to the uh, corn and soybean seed industry. And so in this case, that means that we'll be working with Grow Alliance to integrate our light treatments into their seed conditioning facilities. They have several across the Midwest and bringing that to farmers so they can uh, get the advantage of that technology that's embedded into the seed. That's uh, really interesting because so much of this is over my head. And as you look at this partnership and it's becoming more available to our listeners, does the treatment come with a shelf life? Uh, is there a certain window in which our listeners have to work with the product? Yeah, that's a great question. So the we've been testing the shelf life, if you will, of the treatments. And what we've seen so far is that uh, even for uh, treatments that are six months out, we're testing one year out now, we're seeing an equal and at a surprise to us, a greater, in some case, um, efficacy of the treatments. We know it's important for something like uh, soybeans where, you know, the germination rates go down, uh, uh, you know, rapidly if a seed is not used uh, in season. And so uh, we're able to deploy these treatments, give a, a bit of a boost to that uh, yield growth. Um, and our expectation is that the efficacy of the treatments will last well over a year. So Steve, as you look at the future of Biolumic, I saw in your in your release that really you're noting UV light signaling is the next frontier in plant science. How do we get there? Or are we already there? Well, we're there in uh, a number of ways. I mean, we're we're focused on um, you know bringing this to market at commercial scale and so the commercial scale with our partnership with grow alliance has you know really taken a, a big leap forward scientifically you know, you know photomorphogenesis is well established science of course we've added as biolimic to that with you know 20 years of science and mode of action knowledge and uh, genetic marker insights and treatment tech and so scientifically and in terms of validating that the recipes can create these benefits, yield and plant health and root growth and ability to withstand abiotic stress, we're there and we're improving upon it. Um, now the next step is to bring this uh, for seed um, uh, growers and, and farmers to a commercial scalability for them. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> it's going to be fun to watch as we look into the future. And if our listeners are 
curious about what you guys have going on and want to follow along with the advancements that you're going to make here in the near future, what's best that they stay in touch and get their information? Yeah, so the best way to do that is to go to our website. It has a, a bunch of information about our science and our platform and uh, the timing of when we're hitting the market. That's at www.bionlimic.com. And you know, there is information there about how we're activating uh, these seeds with our treatments. And uh, would love to uh, hear from farmers and uh, seed companies as well and get their thoughts on the technology. Well, there you go, Delaney. It's always fun to pick up on the latest technology. Glad our listeners are here to join us as well. Stay tuned. We've got more shows this week. Follow us on social media. Hit us up with your guest ideas and suggestions. But today, Delaney, should we let them go? Let's let them go.